0: Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. I've talked about this incident before out in California. There was a company that had private uh, safe deposit boxes. It wasn't a bank. It was a company. You could rent a, a safe deposit box from them and put stuff in the box and come by periodically and, and take your stuff out, put your stuff back in, whatever you wanted to do. And they charge rent on those boxes. And they had other businesses running out of that facility as well. And there was a big bust where the the law enforcement came in and seized everything in that building, including the structure within which all the safe deposit boxes were. And when they took all that stuff out, they notified all of the people and put a sign up in the window of the store. If you had one of these boxes, contact us if you want to get your stuff back. And uh, many people looked at this and said, Steve, wait a second. It looks a lot like civil asset forfeiture. And as the case has gone on, it's become to look more and more like that, almost as if law enforcement intended to do this all along. And there's a guy named Michael Finnegan who writes for the Los Angeles Times has been following this story and just really digging into it. And this is a great story. A bunch of people sent it to me. But the headline is that the FBI misled the judge who signed the warrant for the Beverly Hills seizure of $86 million in cash. There's a lot of detail in that headline. We'll get to it. The privacy invasion was vast when FBI agents drilled and pried their way into 1,400 safe deposit boxes at a company called U.S. Private Vaults that's located in Beverly Hills, California. Among the things that they dug through, the personal belongings of a jazz saxophone player, an interior designer, a retired doctor, a flooring contractor, two Century City lawyers, and hundreds of others. These are just regular people who decided to get a safe deposit box at that location for whatever reason. And so, could those boxes have been used to break the law or to hide ill-gotten gains? Possibly. But the fact that something's possible does not mean that it is actually something that's happening. So, agents took photos and videos of pay stubs, password lists, credit cards, at least one prenuptial agreement immigration and vaccination records, bank statements, heirlooms, and a will, according to court records. In one box, agents found human remains of somebody who'd been cremated. So somebody's loved one was cremated. They put the remains in the safe deposit box, which was then seized by the FBI for some reason. Now, we're about 18 months out, a year and a half later, Newly unsealed court documents show that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles got their warrant for that raid by misleading the judge who approved it. They omitted from their warrant request a central part of their plan. Permanent confiscation of everything inside every box containing at least $5,000 in cash or goods. And that's from testimony from a senior FBI agent. They planned all along to seize everything from any box containing at least $5,000 in value. Their justification for the dragnet forfeiture was its presumption that hundreds of unknown box holders were all storing assets somehow tied to unknown crimes. But here, they're not working on a crime and they figure it out. They're assuming there was a crime and doing it backwards. So they're going, okay, there's this stuff in a box. It must have come from a crime. Let's just grab it. And civil asset forfeiture allows us to do that. And then if you want your stuff back, you can sue us. Well, the good news is a bunch of these people filed a lawsuit. So there is a class action lawsuit underlying this. It took five days for the FBI agents to fill their evidence bags with everything they'd grabbed. More than $86 million in cash, a bonanza of gold, silver, rare coins, gem-studded jewelry, and enough Rolex and Cartier watches to stock a boutique. The U.S. Attorney's Office has tried to block public disclosure of court papers that laid bare the government's deception, but a judge rejected that request, and that was a request to keep this stuff sealed. The judge unsealed it. The failure to disclose the confiscation plan and the warrant request came to light in FBI documents and depositions of agents in a class action lawsuit by box holders who say the raid violated their rights. And it's one of the most obvious things of all time, but yes, it did. Court filings also show that federal agents defied restrictions that U.S. Magistrate Judge Steve Kim set in the warrant by searching through box holders' belongings for evidence of crimes. And I did a video on this a while back. And they had said, we want to go into this company and seize everything on the premises. And somebody said, yeah, but there's safe deposit boxes that contain stuff that belong to other people. It doesn't belong to the people who own the company. And they had said, well, we have to seize the structure those boxes are in. So to be safe here, we're going to seize the boxes also. We can't just leave them laying on the floor, right? And when we seize the boxes, we've got to inventory what's in them. And so they made it sound like they were going to do this to protect the people whose stuff they were grabbing. And of course, that's not what happened. The government did not know what was in those boxes, who owned them, or what, if anything, those people had done. Uh, says the lawyer who represents nearly 400 box holders in the class action. That's why the warrant application did not even attempt to argue there's probable cause to seize and forfeit box renters' property. After a two-year investigation that opened in 2019, leaders of the FBI's office in Los Angeles believed that the company was a magnet for criminals hiding illicit proceeds in their boxes. That's the U.S. Private Vaults Company. The business was charged with a crime. The business was charged with conspiracy to sell drugs and launder money. Now, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office denied that they misled the judge or ignored his conditions, saying they had no obligation to tell him of the plan for indiscriminate confiscations on the blanket assumption that every customer is hiding crime-tainted assets. So they don't have to tell the judge they're planning on finding all of this criminal stuff. And if they find criminal stuff, well, you know, it's just how it works out. Spokesperson for the FBI said the warrants were lawfully executed based on allegations of widespread criminal wrongdoing. The question, of course, is who was doing the widespread criminal wrongdoing? The company that owned the boxes or all the people putting stuff in the boxes? At no time was a magistrate misled as to the probable cause used to obtain the warrants, she said. U.S. Private vaults has pleaded guilty to conspiracy to launder drug money. And the investigation is continuing. The plaintiffs in the Class Action suit have asked the U.S. district judge to declare the raid unconstitutional. If he grants the request, it could force the FBI to return millions of dollars to box holders whose assets it has tried to confiscate. It also could spoil an unknown number of criminal investigations by blocking prosecutors from using any evidence or information acquired in the raid. Until the FBI shut it down, U.S. Private Vault was an easy-to-miss store in an Olympic Boulevard strip mall with a Supercuts hair salon and a vegan Thai restaurant nearby. Around 2015, it popped up on police radar. Local detectives and federal agents spotted drug suspects walking in and out. FBI agent Lynn Zellhart, a former Sacramento attorney, first heard about it from a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy. Customers who could rent boxes without identifying themselves uh, entered the store's vault with a biometric eye scan, according to the deputy. The Sheriff's Department suspected a customer was a criminal but was having all kinds of problems getting into the box they had a warrant for because of the nature of the business. So by 2019, federal and local law enforcement had managed to search more than a dozen boxes and seized about $5 million from five drug dealers, a bookie, and a debit card thief. So they claimed that they actually did find stuff by doing the proper channels and investigating actual crimes. The FBI opened an investigation of the business itself And uh, the FBI agent who specializes in money laundering said she thought it should be shut down. She joined forces with counterparts at the Drug Enforcement Agency and the Postal Inspection Service. Through surveillance, informants, and undercover work, they surmised that U.S. private vaults and a precious metals store next door were helping drug dealers launder cash by converting it into gold and silver that they then stashed in their boxes. Uh, Zellhart was tasked with spelling out the government's case in an affidavit that took her more than six months to write. Prosecutors submitted it to the magistrate in a request for six warrants. Five of them were for straightforward searches of the store and the homes of the owners of the store and homes of the managers of the store to gather evidence for prosecution. But the sixth was highly unusual. It was to seize the store's business equipment for forfeiture. The government said it wanted to take not just computers, money counters, video cameras, and iris scanners, but also the nests of the safe deposit boxes and keys. The nests are the the rack that the boxes go into, but they were not granted permission about the boxes and the contents. But the only way the FBI could seize the racks of boxes would be to take possession of the contents also. Any judge reviewing the warrant request would recognize a threat to the rights of what turned out to be about 700 customers who had locked away some of their most private and valuable belongings in those boxes. Box holders would liken the raid to police barging into a building's 700 apartments and taking every tenant's possessions when they have evidence of wrongdoing by nobody but the landlord. Spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office declined to say whether the government had evidence of criminal activity by any specific box holder prior to the raid. So they were asked, did you have any evidence? And they declined to comment. When they could have just said yes. See, they didn't say, do you have any evidence? Can you show it to us? Do you have any evidence? Period. We'll we'll take you at your word if you just want to say yes or no. No response. In her affidavit, Zellhart made sweeping allegations of criminal wrongdoing by box holders, saying it would be irrational for anyone who wasn't a lawbreaker to entrust the store with assets that a bank could better safeguard. That is insanity. To suggest that people will trust a bank more than a business. Because, number one, banks are businesses. But my point is that a, non, uh, you know, a, a, a non-bank know—a non business. And the point is that many people do not trust banks anymore. Especially Wells Fargo. Think of Wells Fargo, how much trouble they've had. Or the other banks out there that have had issues in the news lately. And uh, would you trust your stuff to Wells Fargo or that business there on the corner that you've known about for years? Only those who wish to hide their wealth from the DEA, IRS, or creditors would rent a box anonymously, she wrote. But the FBI's evidence against customers was thin. Agents had seen some of them pull up to the store in vehicles with Nevada, Ohio, and Illinois license plates. Based on my training and experience in money laundering investigations, Chicago, Illinois, is a hub of both drug trafficking and money laundering, she said. I believe these patrons were using their box to store drug proceeds and cited no facts to back up the suspicion. By the way, I lived in California for a couple of years. And a brief period of time while I was there had Michigan license plates on my car. Oh my gosh, what's that man up to? He's going to law school. No, 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 no. He drove by Chicago to get here, didn't he? Chicago's a hub of drug activity, Obviously. Other customers were showing up in rental cars, and that, too, she claimed was a sign of drug dealers evading law enforcement because who would rent a car other than a drug dealer? (sighs) An owner of U.S. private vaults told a government witness the store's best customers were bookies, prostitutes, and weed guys. Of all the box holders, Zellhart mentioned only nine, either identifying them by their initials or not at all. She said they were linked or associated with law enforcement investigations, But again, provided no facts specifying actual criminal misconduct. While the majority of customers seem to be drug dealers, she wrote, (laughs) U.S. private vaults tried to attract a non-criminal clientele as well, so as not to be too obvious a haven for criminals. So she's even admitting that they would have had non-criminal clientele. At her deposition, the attorney asked her, was it your opinion that most of the people who rented safe deposit boxes were criminals in some way. She said, I was expecting a lot of criminals. I don't know about most. So if it's not most, she's saying the majority of them were actually legitimate. That's what the definition of most is, I believe. She said, I don't know about most. So the attorney reminded her of the language in her affidavit, to which she says, I don't sort of know how to answer your question as to whether it was all of them. It was most of them. I don't I don't have a percentage, but she just said I don't know about most. On the affidavit's 84th and 85th pages, remember it took her six months to write, so it's gotta have a lot of pages. She assured she assured the magistrate that the FBI would respect customers' rights. That section she testified was written by someone else. It's written by Andrew Brown, an assistant U.S. attorney and driving force of the investigation. What Brown wrote contradicts the FBI's plan for hundreds of box confiscations. He underlined the government's lack of evidence to justify any criminal search of the customer's property. His section of the affidavit reads, "...the warrants authorize the seizure of the nests of the boxes themselves, not their contents. By seizing the nests of safety deposit boxes themselves, the government will necessarily end up with custody of what is inside those boxes initially." And the use of the word initially implies that they acknowledge that they will have custody until such time as they can turn it over to whoever actually owns it. The affidavit told the magistrate that agents would follow their written inventory policies and attempt to notify the lawful owners of the property stored in the boxes how to claim their property. Under FBI policy, it said, inspection of each box would extend no further than necessary to determine ownership. But agents' inspection of the boxes went substantially further just as the government planned, according to FBI records in court. By the time Kim got the warrant request, the FBI had been preparing an enormous forfeiture operation for at least six months. According to Jesse Murray, the chief of the FBI's asset forfeiture unit in Los Angeles. In the summer of 2020, she testified Matthew Moon, one of the highest-ranking FBI agents in Los Angeles, asked her if her team was Capable of handling a possible large scale seizure of safe deposit boxes at U.S. private vaults? Murray told him yes. She recalled joining a conference call in 2020 and another in 2021 to plan forfeitures of the box contents with the U.S. Attorney's Office, other federal and local agencies, and maybe even our legal forfeiture unit at the headquarters in D.C. Zellhart, and a colleague, confirmed the grand scale of the planned forfeiture in a memo to fellow agents with detailed instructions for carrying out the raid. So Murray testified that once she reviewed the final draft of Zellhart's affidavit, it was clear to her that there was probable cause to seize and confiscate the contents of every box as long as it was meeting the $5,000 minimum set by the Justice Department's Asset Forfeiture Policy Manual. It's a couple of different things here that are striking. Okay, And the first is that these law enforcement agencies spent a long time drafting an affidavit to support the request for a warrant. And the warrant was to search and seize this location. And by searching it, they're going to go through it and they're going to seize a bunch of stuff that's identified in this affidavit. And they specifically identified the nests that the boxes were in, but specifically said they were not going to seize the contents of the boxes, but by necessity, when they grab the whole unit, they're going to be in possession of those boxes. Initially, initially, and so when the magistrate's reading this affidavit and getting ready to grant the warrant, the magistrate goes, okay, these people are going to temporarily grab this nest but then return the boxes to their owners. That, that's pretty straightforward. And it turns out that the 85-page affidavit, or however long it was, has all these allegations in there, and some of them appear to be contradictory, which apparently the magistrate didn't catch. But the point is... That when asked about it later, one of the agents said, oh, I didn't draft that portion. Someone else drafted that portion. Oh, I didn't draft that portion. I got news for you. And this is true of lawyers. And whether it's true of FBI agents, I can't say for certain, except that the logic would be the same. And that is, you should see the court rules that address what it means when I sign a document and submit it to a court. You might say, Steve, you must sign lots of documents. Oh, yeah, I sign all kinds of documents. But I don't do it flippantly. And the reason is, is court rules, which are actual legal things that I've got to follow. And the court rules say specifically that if I sign something, putting my signature on a document and submitting it to the court, my signature affirms that I've reviewed the document and it is meritorious. It's not being interposed for a bad reason. I vouch for it and it's on me. So I cannot go to a court and say, Your Honor, I filed this complaint and you're mad at me now because the complaint's a pile of garbage. But my my client asked me to. I'm sorry. But, you know, I, I know my name's on it, but no, no, my client asked me to. Or my client drafted that. Guess how far that would get when I sign it, but I blame it on somebody else. Because the signatory, the person who signs it, is on the hook for it as if they drafted it themselves. That's the way it is. So if you got a letter from somebody, big, long letter, letterhead, and it's signed by somebody, and the letter causes you to react in some way, and you call up the person who signed the letter and say, I want to talk about that letter. Oh, I didn't draft all of that. You're upset about paragraph three? Uh eh, the other guy wrote that. Paragraph four? Oh, other guy wrote that. Go, go yell at them. No, they didn't sign the letter. You did. This stuff is all above your signature. So when somebody submits an affidavit to a magistrate it says, I want a search warrant, and I've signed this document, to later go, oh, (laughs) I didn't draft that paragraph. Oh, it's it's a thick affidavit. There's entire pages in there that I didn't draft. Those are drafted by other people. When you submit something to a court, magistrate would be a court, you submit something to a court, and it's a document, and it's got one signature, and you are the person who signed it. And you are submitting it to the court. The court assumes that you are the one who's vouching for the contents of that because you signed it. And so for them to say, oh, we didn't, I, I didn't sign, so, well, I, yeah, I signed it, but I didn't draft that. That's somebody else's fault. No, you put your signature on it. It's your fault. Number one. Number two, it appears that they knew all along that they intended to seize the contents of those boxes. And if you read the actual statements from the affidavit, it says things like, we will initially take possession of these. And I know what someone's going to say, they're going to say, Steve, that could also mean they're going to take possession of them at the beginning. doesn't say they're going to give it up. But the implication is clear. The implication is clear that We want to seize this rack that's got boxes in it and initially we'll take possession of the boxes. Well, that implies that you're going to give those boxes back to somebody after you initially take possession of them. And there's other stuff going on here where it's very obvious that the government actors here, the agents, actually had a plan all along to seize these boxes and their contents and to forfeit them. That was their plan all along. So they thought to themselves, hmm, we can get an affidavit to seize individual boxes. Apparently they did that five or six times. But there's 1,400 boxes in there. That's going to take a lot of time. Is there a way we can do this in bulk? Yeah, let's seize the entire thing. So it turns out if the landlord's breaking the law, we can seize all of the landlord's stuff, which would include the nest and the boxes, but not the contents. Well, let's tell the magistrate, that we're just going to grab the contents for inventory purposes initially and see if we can get away with that. And they got away with that. And so they seized all the boxes. And as noted, there were people in there who were innocent bystanders who got swept up in it. And again, I know a lot of people say, Steve, you know something, if you've got valuables in a safe deposit box, you're probably up to no good. Not necessarily. You might also just not trust our currency. There's all kinds of reasons people buy gold and silver. And someone who's got a valuable watch collection might not want to keep all their extra watches at their house. I've actually known people with valuable watch collections. I've even done stories on people with them. So you've got 25 valuable watches. You have one or two watches at home and the rest you put someplace for safekeeping. Does that make you a criminal? <laughs> I know people who don't like watches, but still. <sighs> if you like watches and you don't want them laying around your house, you put them someplace for safekeeping. Doesn't make you a criminal. So it's a crazy story. It continues to get crazier. I got to salute Michael Finnegan and the Los Angeles Times for doing great work on this story and just following it, just just doggedly pursuing this story. Keep up the great work, guys, and uh, I will continue to follow it as well. The FBI misled the judge who signed the warrant for the Beverly Hills seizure of $86 million in cash and all kinds of other stuff. Destroyed sent to you by James, Kyle, Chad, Jim, Nicholas, Christopher, Rich, and Phil. Thanks a lot. Questions or comments, put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye bye. Thank you for watching. Leto's Law. I drive way too fast to worry about cholesterol.